time. Time to start the day. I'm sort of getting this thing you were talking about. Like, this is the end of the week for me. So this is my afternoon. I can kind of relax a little bit. I'm kind of looking forward to it. I think we so we're still fumbling around like how do we kick these these things off because I'm either like not recording and we just start talking and, and then I'm like oh I gotta record and then I have to like stitch something <laughs> and so it's all good I mean we're figuring out our format here and then last week we did the awkward oh we need to bring Mike in and and then I got confused and I was like yeah and uh so this week now we're just like here we are we're going forward and and so welcome this everybody it. this is api yeah. storytelling this is what it's all about yeah definitely so who do we have with how us to, else? Yeah. how do so who do we have with us today i guess i mean uh, you know because you weren't here last week mike so i i hesitate to make this just about you me and aiden but yeah. we're having guests so i guess we've got we've got to figure out a flow here so go yeah. ahead we, we, Got a guest over, so uh, I, I got the I got the privilege of introducing our guest today, uh, Lorinda Brandon. Uh, we asked Lorinda ahead ahead of time how she wanted to be introduced, so I've got this in front of me here. Engineering director currently at Twilio, who has been active in the API space for quite some time, and has seen some things, which I think is pretty accurate, don't you think, Lorinda? I think so. I have seen some things. I have been around long enough to, like, yeah, witness. Some well, stuff. I, I mean, I can, I, I'm, I'm not above mentioning it. Twilio, Capital One, Smart Bear, EMC, Intuit, Interleaf, the U.S. Air Force. I mean, you have seen some things in all sorts of, all sorts of ways, which is very, very cool. Yeah, I, I think. Um, so I'm not afraid to say it. I have been in this industry for 37 years as of this year. Wow. So yeah, I've watched some stuff get invented that now everybody takes for granted <laughs> and uh, helped build some software that is still, I think, I'm not in the Air Force anymore. I never was in the Air Force, but I'm not a civilian with the Air Force anymore. I, but I think some of our systems are probably still running there. So I uh, have I bet they are. And in 37 years, I mean, you started in this industry when you were eight years old. What is the story? <laughs> now, don't wake me. I admitted that. I'm not going to admit how old I am. But no. There you go. No, no, we're not going there. We're not going there. the compliment there, Mike. No, no. That, that's a contest I lose every time. We're not doing that. Yeah, that, the API with a birthday field, it doesn't return that all the time. It's, a, it's optional. That's right. Let's exactly. just say I, I was building software before there was the web, the internet existed, but I remember gophering into servers, and, and so yeah, I've been around for a while. So, so did you start in the Air Force? Was that your first uh, your first foray into this? My my aunt uh, told me stories like decades into my life that I never heard about being one of the first women programming for the Navy, and I had no idea what things were like back then. But I imagine you must have been pretty early in that. So, okay, this isn't the story we were going to tell, but I'll tell this story because this is fun. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's all, it's all good. I mean, here, I'm going to sound absolutely ancient at the moment, but I, um, I joined the Air Force. I keep saying that. I was a civilian with the Air Force. I was never in the Air Force. Um, but I worked at the Sacramento Air Logistics Center, which no longer exists. And I um, was in my 20s. and we managed aircraft 
I was a production manager, and so we managed modifications to aircraft, and they would come into the hangars and be modified, like they'd update the radar or whatever. And um, I was one of the people who was responsible for, we got assigned specific modifications, and you had to work with all the vendors to get all the things, you know, this, these screws and these bolts and these wires, and, and you had to keep track of all of them, and you had to make sure they all got to the hangar with the instructions for how to do the mods. You had to know when all the tail, uh, tail numbers, you know, the aircraft were coming in, and you had to go down to the hangar and meet with the guys who were going to do the modifications, and you had to make sure they had all the parts and they knew what they were doing. Here's the other side of that. That's the job. Um, in those days, I could not go, this is in the 80s, um, early mid 80s. One, I couldn't go to the hangar unescorted because I was a young woman in my 20s. And so I had to have a male colleague walk with me to the hangar. So you can imagine what that felt like, how humiliating that is to be like responsible for a modification. And I have to go meet with the people to do the modification. But because I'm a female, I had to ask somebody to walk me over. So that was annoying. But also the more interesting thing from a tech perspective, we were doing all of this with pencil and paper. So every phone call I made to a vendor, I had, I wrote down all the notes, I kept track of all the parts, we kept track of all the aircraft in a special ledger, which modifications they got, what date they flew in, we wrote it all down. And the way I got into technology was that the aircraft decided they needed to computerize all, I mean the Air Force decided they needed to computerize all of that. And they asked for volunteers, I was in the A-10 office at the time, so the Warhawk, and they asked for volunteers who wants to work with these programmers and help them understand what we do? And like everybody's reaction was, oh my God, we're gonna lose our jobs. They're gonna like, they're gonna automate what we do. Except for me, I was like, this job sucks. And so I'm like, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and so, and so <coughs> a dumb terminal, literally in a supply closet. So I came to work every day I sat in a supply closet surrounded by boxes of papers and pens and I sat at this terminal and I would test what the developers were writing. I would write down for them all the things that were wrong because we didn't have bug reporting systems and so I wrote it down on a piece of paper and then I would trap my little self across the campus and bring it to the little hole in the wall that the developers worked in and I would hand them this piece of paper and say, here's the stuff that didn't work. And like, and I would write down requirements, you know, here's the reports we generate. And, and that was how I got into it. And I have never looked back. So that's my little story about my beginning. That is uh David is busy thinking, how the hell old is she? Let me <laughs> <laughs> What's really, what's really amazing to me is like connections, connections. About 10 years later, I'm in Linköping, Sweden at the Saab Aircraft Factory, working with them on their automation of build of materials and, uh, and spec management and, and compliance and all these other things. So 
in, in many ways, I'm sure I was probably introduced to the work you did, you know, earlier. I was probably doing some of that automation, maybe even in, you know, if you can think about it in a really weird and depressing way, maybe still working on the same bugs you reported earlier. Probably, probably. And, and it was all about bill of materials. Like back then, yeah. that's the kind of stuff we were trying to solve was just, right as a data and we're keeping track of it in notebooks and like how do you know this right stuff is getting shipped in the right way for the right people and what your inventory really is like i think most of our original systems were about that so one one quick augment to bill of materials uh api so my last job before postman here i was at f5 networks for a little bit there was a bill of materials api that i was doing the spec on and Pro tip, don't walk around the airport on a conference call saying, the bomb, and we're working on the bomb because everyone called it the bomb at work. And I'm like pacing back and forth saying, did you do the bomb? I think the pipeline failed for the bomb was the test and the bomb. So don't do not do that at airports. Yeah, yeah Ken, I don't, I don't see any windows in this office of yours. <laughs> There isn't. They don't let me out anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I, hearing this original story reminds me of um, of last week when we were there's like a quick moment we were talking about like pneumatic tubes and automating API processes and um, you know the first things that we put into the computers were obviously going to be the things that we were doing in the real world um, and I think we've now like evolved past that in that a lot of those problems have been kind of solved and someone who works on those APIs will tell me that they're not. Uh, but we're we're now like almost working on problems that only exist in the digital realm, which is super interesting. Like there are APIs about abstract concepts that didn't really ever exist in the real world now. Or beyond skeuomorphism, or the, the skeuomorphism like not gonna apply anymore. I feel, yeah, I feel like some of these some of these things have changed. Uh, we can talk to over each other. <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, like that's probably a good segue, though, because I do think that that's like one of the things that I was saying to Mike before we joined was like I, um, I've I've long been an advocate for like let can we build software that people can use? Um, yeah, and, you. I'm, I'm sorry, I say, you go, you go ahead, you finish your idea, you finish your thought first. No, I was going to say, and I think that to some degree, like I listened to, um, you know, all your previous podcasts, and I know in the beginning of Mike's discussion, he was like, oh, what drew me to this was, you know, and he started talking about protocols and stuff, and, and I thought, yeah, but like that's the difference between software now and software then like we were we were literally solving a specific problem for a specific group of people doing a specific thing and and you're right Aiden like now we're we start in the digital realm and we stay there and so we've kind of lost our our connection to real people doing real things and what do they really need and what are their real constraints and can they figure out anything we're I know my family can't understand anything I say when I talk about my work, and so how can they understand the software we're building? Like that's that's the part that I struggle with. Yeah, and and that takes me to the the thing that we were talking about offline. I I can't quite remember when we first met. It it was it was around 
2013, 2014. Um, but I remember in 2014, you did this Glucon talk, which really I think addresses the very thing you're starting to talk about here. I think it, it was called, I make software suck less, I think, right? I think that's what it was. It was a keynote for Glucon. And you said you represented non-technical America. That was like right out of the gate. You were like, I'm here to represent, which I, I thought was, was really, really amazing. Because Glucon is a very, very techy, very nerdy. You were talking about this was seven years ago. You're talking about IoT and all the things about IoT, I think, at the time. So what what, what I remember is um, you really focused on the people side of it. Uh, you, you talked about the Internet of my things. You talked about, like, I as a consumer. And a lot of us don't do that. I get really, like you said, I get really wrapped up in the protocols and the digital bits, and like Aiden says. So, so, I mean, was that always, was that always your handle, always your way of moving forward? Or was there something that went on as you kept moving through these organizations that led you to talk about security and data and people and meeting people's needs? What, what, where did that come in? Yeah, I think, well, to some degree, like, it's nice how this is all sort of <laughs> connected to each other. Um, I think it's longevity, right? I have been here long enough to see the software industry change significantly. And, and I think over time, I've watched the impact of this on, I come from a non-technical family. I don't know about y'all, but like, you know, I come from a whole bunch of teachers and, and my siblings are mostly most of my siblings I come I have seven siblings most of them are teachers um, or in academia somehow um, my husband ha is one of six so we both come from large families and he's one of six and his family is all academia or medicine or whatever but we are not nobody else my husband and I are sole <laughs> members of our families who are in the technology industry. And so I'm very conscious of the fact that, like I said, they can't understand what I'm saying when they say, what do you do for a living? And I say, oh yeah, you know, I, you know, for a while I was like, oh, I evangelize APIs. You know, I go around and talk to people, well, why they should build APIs? And they're like, okay, what's an API? And I'm just like, oh, you know, it's part of software. But, but, you know, they are baffled by a lot of this. And yet, what's happened over time, and I, and I, you know, there's funny stories and I can tell you like this pandemic has raised some like hilarious moments for all of us uh, when it comes to technology, but I also find it sad um, because there are people out there who do not have the access to technology that we do. They don't have access to devices and internet like we do. They don't take it for granted, and we do. And we forget that this isn't normal life. Like, this is normal life for the tech industry. This is not normal life for other people. And, and I look at the pandemic, and I think there's so many things that we should learn from this. And one of the things that I really feel very strongly about is like, it proves the point of what I was saying in 2014, which is, which is, People do not understand the ship, sorry, the stuff we built for them. So, so, like, how many of you have been on a Zoom meeting with your 
non-technical family members and they're like they can't figure out what they're supposed to do and they can't figure out even how to connect to it and then like it's so this is a funny story but it's also like it's the type of thing that drives me crazy i have a 95 year old stepfather he is in an assisted living and he has been periodically locked down because they have outbreaks of the virus and then they lock everybody in their rooms and he's got this lovely apartment so it's not like he's in terrible circumstances but he can barely see my mom passed a couple of years ago and so he's alone he's isolated we can't visit him no none of the family nearby can go visit him and so he's stuck like he can't read anymore because he can't see so we're like we try to zoom with him you know here's a chance we because he can't really hear you on the phones we're like okay we'll zoom with him well the first time we zoomed with him he's like he can't understand why he can't see anybody else and, and we kept saying stop talking because it's focusing on you because like you see you because you're in speaker view we tried to explain to him about gallery view we couldn't get it we were like okay let's keep that up and we just said stop talking and he's like, oh, okay, I'll stop talking because then if I, I guess if I'm talking, I can only see my words. Stop talking. <laughs> we couldn't get him to stop, like just musing about what the problem was, and so he could never, stop, he could never see us. So, like, here's a situation where this, this is normal life for most people. We live in this kind of environment, but other people don't. Many of my family members who are spent their lives in academia this is the first year they've had to use video conferencing and it's like it's freaky to them they don't understand how to do it their their cameras are over here right so looking <laughs> at their lip, this is the, how they're talking to you and you're like no turn around look at me you know so like this is this is the it's funny and it's not and um one of the things that i think is you know, very telling is the way that we're rolling out vaccines. You need to sign up for it yeah. on an app. And people like the elderly are the first people trying to sign up. A lot of people don't have smartphones. They don't know how to use them. Or they did at one time and they can't anymore. So another aspect that you and I were talking about earlier, right, was um, and oh my God, don't get me started on 2FA and how it is not designed for North people. Um, my stepfather, again, bless his heart. This is a man who was a math teacher for a long time and taught computer science and was the first programmer I knew because he, he's been my stepfather for longer than my father was my father. He, my father passed when he was fairly young. So this is the first programmer I ever knew. He's 95, can barely see. He locked himself out of his smartphone because he couldn't remember his password. He tried too many different things. He couldn't see the phone very well, locked himself out. So now his phone is basically a brick because we can't help him. He's isolated and we can't all see each other. So he also somehow lost his Facebook account. We don't even know what he's doing there all over in his apartment, but anyway, he's he somehow created a separate Facebook account, a new Facebook account, and then he couldn't figure out where all his friends went. So he kept saying to us, like, 
nobody's playing games with me anymore. Why isn't anybody playing games? We're like, we don't know what you're saying. And then we realized he had created an alternate Facebook account that he was all alone in. And he could not, it was connected to an old email address that he didn't have access to anymore. Mm. And in order to change anything, he has to go through 2FA. And he can't go through 2FA because his phone is bricked. Oh, God. And so, and we can't see him. We can't go there and take all his devices and fix all his stuff. So we have to talk him through it. And I literally, I actually took an entire day off from work because I had to have Verizon on the phone with me. I had to have Apple on the phone with me. And I had to have him on the phone with all of us. And we just had to get him live again because the seriousness of this is while it's a funny story, he's all alone. And the only thing that keeps him mentally healthy is being able to interact. And he can't because we, we in technology forgot about him. And it, it broke my heart trying to work this through. Um, but it made, it just brought to the surface how we've forgotten who's on the other end of the stuff we're building and how hard it is. It's easy for us. We get how all these things are linked together. We understand the underlying technology. We know what's talking to what and how it all works. They don't. And so it's mysterious to them why they can't communicate across devices. Why, you know, like the other thing he kept doing was he has, he has multiple browsers. And so he's got Firefox and Chrome and Safari. And he has some things on some things. And like he's got passwords stored in different areas. And we couldn't figure out what browser he's looking in. He'd lose things while he was talking to us. You know, like, I don't know, I was looking at this screen and now it's gone. And you'd have to say, which browser are you in? He's like, I don't even know what that means. That's, that is the majority of the people out there. They have lives where they do not sit in front of computers all day. I now think, they do. I think you give us us the engineers too much credit that we know how all this stuff works. Because I, uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. think we do. I don't think we do either. So. No, that's that is undoubtedly Just just the idea that like a phone has a password now, like just that one isolated idea, is is crazy to think about someone going through most of their life with phones not having passwords and being able to pick them up and ring them to anyone in the world and now they have a password. Right. Like right. And when it's your only connection to the outside world, that's what the pandemic should be teaching us, right? Is like this is all about making connections to people so you have to make it so accessible. Um but yeah, I anyway, like I I this is the stuff that makes me nuts is that I feel like we've just we've lost contact with you know, with our audience, our real audience. And so you can build all the APIs you want that can enable all the things you want. But like here are these people who don't understand what we're doing with their data and they don't understand how to get access to things and they don't always have the access. Right. So, right. you know, it's I think that's the hardest part of all of this to me is I feel like the technology we build is really cool if if you can get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I and I think I shared with you earlier, I have a, a very similar tale. Now, 
my father-in-law is 97, my mother-in-law is 93. They're still living in the house that they built uh, in the Detroit area. So they're, they're not in a home and, and he's not really isolated. But uh, my mother-in-law is, is uh, going through dementia and she has a harder time. And she's just given up on computing altogether. She used to just do a lot of computers. She was also a teacher. He's a research, he was a research chemist at um, uh, GM. And he, he would re, reboot, rebuild, and you know, just pave and nuke his Windows machines every once in a while, all up into his early 90s. He's got a Chromebook now, but he, he suffered the exact same thing. He got locked out of his phone, and now he can't read his email, he can't, he can't uh, do all the other things. He can do stuff anonymously, but he can't do his own thing anymore. And it's super, super frustrating. We had the same situation. Now he had a, a visiting caregiver, so we did what you did. The visiting caregiver was our, were our you know fingers and eyes, and she would explain what he would tell us. And it was a very, very similar experience. And and I didn't really think about it in the way that you just described it, which is, it's a world of our making. Now you know, not me personally, but it's a world that it's a choice set of choices we made. Aiden's point is so good, like, log into your phone, huh? Yeah, right. So, yeah, it's just right. amazing. You know, to contrast it, like we are at my, my teams at Twilio, we're rolling out to FA across all of our customer base. And we were prepped, like we were ready, because with the API, like that breaks your integration. And so we knew we were gonna break integrations for people and we were ready. We had engineers on standby. We had support was staffed up. We were ready for the influx of calls and people, you know, saying, you can't do this and we need an extension. You can't make it, you can't enforce it right now. You know, we, these are developers. Like they're like, they're like, okay, got it. Thanks. And just rolled under, we got no, no noise at all. We were sitting there like, okay, here it comes. Nothing nothing nobody was upset about it because like they get it yeah. they get it. this is oh yeah that, that totally makes sense you're trying to secure my account you're rolling out to a bay i'm happy that's cool thank you for doing that i'll just go take care of it it doesn't like that's because that's the world we live in we just think oh yeah to a is easy that's fine that's cool with everybody but it's this situation where yeah, but not everybody knows how to solve these problems. Not everybody knows what to do next. And, and yeah. so anyway, I think I, I'm hoping that eventually we'll get to a place where we're building technology for non-technologists. That's do, do you think there's a little bit to that, that that's API too, that there's a self-service aspect of APIs we we go grab these APIs and we're kind of on our own and there's a there's a self-sufficiency that you have to have in in, in in consuming APIs and it takes a certain type of personality to do it and I know I've had these conversations with Mike several times before ironically in Colorado and in, to something there's something with the coal under the airport in, in Colorado but we'll go back to that is around People just, when it comes to the API thing, a lot of enterprise customers just want, just show us how to do it and how to get it done so we can like check that off and move on. How do you do the API thing? And I feel like a lot of enterprise 
software and technology is very heavy touch, hands-on, heavy support, where this new API world is a lot more self-service and independent. And now it's not always consistent, but do you think we're kind of a, a unique breed of technologists as well in that, or is it, or am I reading too much into it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know. I, I actually don't think. I think APIs are so pervasive. You know, unlike when we first started this journey, I think they're so pervasive, even internally in enterprises. I, I don't know. I think um, it could be that that's the case. I think that we are we we as a technology industry and i think this is true in enterprises too ken is we've gotten so used to being able to get access via apis to just about anything we want and if we can't we can always it's common conversation now to say hey i need to get to this can you build me an api can you get can you throw me an endpoint that i can use to get to that data right it's pretty common conversation now even um it could be just the big enterprises that i've been in but i feel like everybody's pretty comfortable with that realm and so it's self-service even internally in enterprises but i think um i think there's a flip side to that just tying it back to like the non-technologists right is that we they don't know what an api is but the power the power of APIs to bring to bring information to the masses. You know, Google search, like everybody knows how to Google search, even if you're non-technologist, right? You live in Google. The, the power of that is amazing, but we haven't made it pervasive and we have the ability to do that. We really do have the ability to do something as deeply simple as Googling something, right? But to make it accessible to everybody in a way that they can understand, I think that's that's where APIs could open up all those doors. But we don't do that. We we keep, it's. I still feel like APIs are a very. Um, and maybe this was your point too. Is they're very developer centric still, versus versus creating a world that is more. You know, Google is not hard to understand. And, well, and I, I think. Oh, go ahead, Amy. I was just to say, I have a story about this like exact thing. And as you were talking, um, I was reminded that like good design becomes invisible. Um, and there might be 10 or 20 or 30 APIs underneath, like all these nice smart devices that might help senior citizens out. Um, but uh, they don't need to know about the API. They don't need to know about the, you know, the network packets or anything. Like they just, they just talk to the wall and the thing happens. It, uh, Reminds me of that. Uh, this is a, not the the point I was going to make, but a funny aside is there's this good YouTube video of a of a of a toddler, and she starts yelling at the microwave and at the um, and at the refrigerator because she had learned that you could talk to devices and that they would say something back, and then she had overgeneralized that to everything around her for like probably two days, and then she figured it out. Uh, if that, five but, years, five years, and then you'll be fine walking around yelling at all the stuff in your house. <laughs> yeah, but like we're, we're entering this new world, and um, I actually had the, a, a great opportunity to work with um, with a, a founder on their uh, startup, and it was not 
the sort of startup I've ever thought I would work at, but I, I helped them get their prototype built. And it was a uh, like senior citizen focused chat uh, device so that all they had to do was just talk to it and start a call. Um, and then also they were able to um, have the um, their people that they put on like a special list, like their, their children and their uh, in-laws and, and things like that could just appear on the screen. Um, and it would give them like a 10 second warning, like, hey, someone's about to show up in this room and then the face would be there. Um, and that was something we could build in like weeks because we had access to all of these APIs. I didn't have to learn anything. I just used WebRTC. I think we had Firebase on the back end that made it really easy to store that list of people who are allowed. And then I think we had Twilio to let people, um, like basically we were, we were using that as a way we were authenticating for um, all this other stuff because when the person said, I want to talk to so-and-so, it would text them a link and they'd click on it and then they'd be in a chat. Um, and that was how we had built it. And it took like almost no time at all the problem was that uh, selling that device was hard, getting investors to get excited about that device was hard, and I would argue that like technology is built for technology that's mostly backed by the ad model or like the new device every two years model is going to focus on the people who are the most uh, spend heavy folks and also the people who are likely to buy a new device every two years. And that's just like an incentive problem. And it's not the whole, all of it, but I think APIs enabled us to do that project in like three or four weeks. And uh, the other stuff going on in the world is why it didn't take off. You know, it, that's, that's such an interesting aspect of it because that's the power. That's exactly, that's the perfect story. That's the power that I, I was talking about that APIs give us, right? Is you can quickly solve this problem and make it so drop-dead simple for the people on the other end. But what you just raised is key, which is who's going to invest in that? Because it's not geared towards the demographic with the money to buy the device, the next device and the next solution next year, right? It's geared towards a different audience. And I think, that, again, like it's the exact same problem. We're building technology for technologists, and then we're funding that technology. Like it's 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 yeah, like we're subsidizing ourselves yeah. instead of helping yeah. more people. Yeah, exactly. And we have the ability. I mean, honestly, the richest people in the world are software people, right? I, and so we have the ability to actually fund things that are good for humanity may not be ad driven or device driven or you know the lead you to your next purchase next year but we don't and and that is just like you know Kim Kim and I have spent too many hours talking about this kind of stuff too it's like you know that we owe something I, I really do believe that we in technology owe something back because we are we are well paid we are comfortable with our technology and we could do so much good you know so like that thing you just talked about aiden what a great device i wish my stepfather had it because it's so hard for us to just arrange a call with him it's really hard and he doesn't even know how to start it on his end he, he wouldn't know the first way to even make a phone call to us 
But it's not technology that limits these things. It's business and it's other cultural class um, based things that are that are standing in the way, acting as gatekeepers to make more revenue or not, you know, or stifle competition. It's not a technology. I mean, so I think that's the lesson for me in the last decade of my technology career is I just learned how much influence the business and politics of industries and different countries impact whether these things actually will provide solutions or make our lives better or just make our lives another version of hell that we hadn't imagined. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, it reminds me of, so one of my engineers, uh, he, you know, being at Twilio, like, because Twilio is really easy to power a lot of really cool things really quickly. And he set up time to talk with me the other day. I don't, I, I'm ha- so happy that I have, have these kinds of engineers working for me, but also that they they know that they can reach out and set up calls with me to talk about this stuff because I love talking about it. But um, he had this idea for, look, how do we create a really simple way for the homeless to know that there are beds available and where the beds are available? And so he's working on a very simple text mechanism because a lot of homeless folks have donated phone, you know, phones that were donated for them that have very basic capabilities, but they do get texts. And so he's trying to work on a solution that will allow homeless shelters to just have a system that they update with, you know, I, I have 60 beds, I've had 58 people check in you know, and, and therefore we can make the understanding that there are two beds available and we can text, you know, the, the homeless who are in the general area to let them know there's two beds available over here, there's three beds available over there. And, you know, it's been very cold in Denver and, and, um, and he was like, you know, what if I built that? And I'm like, go for it. You know, I think that's awesome. Like, yes, let's do it. But it takes, it takes people to be ingenious and take up their own time, you know, and, and we talked about, well, how are you going to fund it? Because you're going to have to run servers, so you're going to have to have something managing it, you know, indefinitely. And so we talked about ways to make that happen, but um, I just, I think having that mentality of understanding that, you know, this is this is the power of APIs. This is, and that will all be Twilio powered, right? And it's He's not looking for investors. He's just looking for ways to make something better locally. You know? Yeah, this this reminds me of, I, I don't remember the whole context of it, but the story, and it may even be apocryphal, was that um, then President Obama was talking uh, to people in Silicon Valley, investors and so on and so forth. And you know, there's this sort of, there was this sort of general notion that, well, if we would just let Silicon Valley solve it, the the country would be so much better. We'd be so much better off. Got so many smart people, and so on and so forth. And the the story goes that his general message to the group was: Look, when when you do a product, when you do a service, you have a target audience. And that target audience is a slice of the country. My my audience, my target audience is everyone. Any solution that I put together has to work for everyone at every level 
I can't pick a slice of the community and just serve them and be successful. It always has to be the whole thing. And I think this goes to what Kim was saying. These are all choices we make, right? Like we have chosen to fund a lot of these projects through private investors who are trying to you know, profit from the investment. We've made the choices to not give over, uh, you know, to, to allow governments to do this project. Like you, this project you're describing would be a perfect investment strategy for local governments or state governments or some other kind of government. But we don't have the mechanisms, the easy mechanisms that we do as if you just wanted to do a pitch to somebody, right? And these are all choices. It's not just the power of APIs. It's also the responsibility, right? We can choose to do things differently, but it has to be a, a, a pretty pretty substantial change in the way the pattern works because of, like Ken says, culture and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, th I think uh, thinking back to this experience with a device and it plays into this engineer um, that's working with you, these devices that we you know, designed were using commodity hardware. They were really easy to put together. They needed basically a tablet, a stand, and a and an outlet. And for two or three hundred bucks, you could put this thing out there. But if you sold it at cost, there's no business in that. But if it starts to be six hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars, all of a sudden, like you can't sell that to a nursing home for every room. You can't sell it to individual families even. And I think uh, the same thing. You know, if a government tried to put on this service, they probably couldn't do it as effectively as as one engineer who's really passionate about it, spending a day a week on it. And like, there's the, all these mismatches, and uh, it almost feels like there needs to be like people who are people who who really believe in this stuff and want to make the world better need to not necessarily have a way to get rich off of doing it, but at least like not become worse off. Like at least get the bills and servers paid for. And like, why can't the local government? pitch over $200, you know, a month to make that happen, or if 2000 even, like, if it really, if it helps five people a day, you know, what is our, cal not to moral calculus it, but it seems like that would be worthwhile. I would definitely put up that, that money to do it if I could. But um, yeah, all these things, having the profit motive at the other end almost degrades what can what becomes possible in a way. It's story time! Time to start the day!